I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. That sentiment, plastered on the back of many cars that'll be stuck in traffic tomorrow morning, kind of reflects the attitude of most Americans. Most Americans see work more as a drudgery to be endured rather than a vocation to be embraced. In a survey in 2018, it said that only 49.6% of Americans are satisfied with their jobs. But that's the highest it had been since 2005. Last year, the satisfaction rate was only 40.5%, with the Bureau of Labor Statistics predicting a subdued mood toward jobs over the next decade. After the great resignation of 2021, in which millions of Americans decided, I'm just not going to work, I'm just going to live off of government programs, jobs are abundant. There are plenty of, there's plenty of work to be done, but few workers. You can always tell in the United States when the job market, uh, where there's a few, a shortage of labor uh, that's going on, because you always see unions go on strike when there is a labor shortage. And so we have that here in the United States at right now happening. Lots of jobs, few workers. But when you're talking about happiness on the job, according to the survey, it's not about money. In fact, money ended up way down on the list of what job makes a job satisfactory. Do you know what the number one complaint was by those in the labor market as leading to their dissatisfaction with work? It's that employers do not listen, do not know their employees, and do not take their input seriously. It's like these uh, people feel like they're not part of the team that they're just worker bees doing what is required, an interchangeable part of a machine. Adding to that, then, is the relative value of their work in comparison to others. You know, with many jobs out there, it's easy for people to look around the cubicle and, and compare themselves with what others are doing. You know, that recent graduate there, they're getting paid as much as I do with much less experience. And they have the boss's ear like I've never had. That is unfair. And perhaps that's really the root of dissatisfaction for most people. Their perceived fairness. I want what is due to me what is owed to me for the value of my work. For most Americans, it's all about perceived fairness. I want to be valued and paid in a fair way, especially by those who write my reviews and sign my paycheck. Which is why, then, a lot of people read the parable that Jesus tells and kind of scratch their head over it. Because it seems like Jesus is, is supporting unfairness. I mean, that's not how we think of Jesus. That's not his character. It just seems in this parable, he sides with those who are unfair. 
if Jesus is really talking about wages to the disgruntled worker in the pew, they might hear this parable and go, yep, that's the way the system works. I grind out a full day of work and some Johnny-come-lately comes along and gets paid the same as I do. Well, if you read the parable that way, that kind of exposes your bias about your own self-worth. But if Jesus is trying to teach us that that worth in God's kingdom is not about your paycheck or your resume or your seniority, that in God's economy... Um, It's not about climbing the corporate ladder, but about holding the ladder for others. Then what better way to illustrate that than to turn the norm totally upside down? A boss who pays everyone the same no matter how long they worked? Now that will grab your attention. So to understand this parable, we really need to know the context of that was what was going on before this. And obviously that was in chapter 19 of Matthew. And in chapter 19 of Matthew, this wealthy Jewish social climber comes to Jesus and says he wants assurance of salvation. He's been a good boy. He's kept all the commandments. I mean, that alone should shoot him to the top of God's favorite list. But Jesus crushes his self-worth when he tells him that he should go, sell all that he has, give it to the poor, and follow him. It says that this rich young man walks away dejected, (laughs) Because, as Matthew says, he had great wealth. Jesus then uses this rich young uh, man to illustrate that comparisons are odious. Comparisons are the handmaiden of uh, the devil there. That in God's kingdom, it's not about what you do. It's about your relationship with the Savior, your relationship with God. It's not about the the things that you do that uh, send you into heaven there, but who you know. Do you know the Savior? Now, the disciples didn't like this teaching because they, along with many in their day and many today as well, believed that wealth was a sign that of God's blessing toward you. And so Peter asked the obvious question, Lord, what about us? We've left everything to follow you. What will we have? And Jesus replies, he acknowledges it. He said, You know, that because you have dispossessed your family, your wealth, your status, your job, it will not go unrewarded. But then Jesus gets back to the point. It's not about comparisons. It's about your focus. Don't let your eye stray from Jesus into the things of this world. And so he says That's because the last will be first 
and the first will be last. What's important is that you belong in God's kingdom. God is generous with his grace. It was the teaching in that time among the Jewish rabbis that the Jewish leaders and the elite of the Jewish society would have a higher status, have priority, and greater wealth in the messianic kingdom. They, like the rich one ruler, um, thought that what they did would gain them higher status and greater priority. But by telling this parable then, Jesus illustrates how the things of this world don't match up with the economy of God's kingdom. It's an absurd parable, really, when you think about it. I mean, a boss giving everyone the same wage no matter how long they work? I mean, it may happen once, but it probably wouldn't happen again, right? I mean, who would go higher with that worker the next morning or that landowner the next morning? Oh, no, not me. They, everyone would wait till 5 o'clock in the evening, right? It just doesn't make sense. But Jesus is using absurdity to illustrate of the absurdity of God's kingdom and especially the absurdity of God's generous grace. Jesus is teaching the difference between generosity and stunning grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is totally undeserved. Grace is not fair. Jesus chooses to give his abundantly absurd grace to the least and the last as he does to those who think they deserve it. It's not about your time in the field. It's not about your status here on earth. It's about a relationship. It's about keeping your eye focused on Jesus. You see, the first ones hired turned away from the owner and compared themselves to the other workers. It's not about your status or your resume, spiritual or otherwise. It's about letting go of the things of this world and embracing the love and mercy that God has for us. It's about recognizing your own insufficiency and need for God's grace. The first will be last and the last will be first, says Jesus, because in God's blessed kingdom, it's all about your relationship with Jesus not the things that you have done. You see, Jesus criticized those Jews who thought that they deserved more because of their chosen, they were the chosen people. It's not about how long you've been in God's kingdom, whether you're a charter member or a new member. 
It's about your relationship with the owner. It's not about your time and grade. So do you begrudge God's generosity? It's easy for us to look down on other people who don't do as much as I do. Or even within our church here to think uh, those people should not have the same voice as I do because these are the things that I do. I'm a better member. They shouldn't be able to outrule what I bring here. It's a hard question directed at us because we so easily turn to comparison. Sure, there's people who need more grace than others, but that's none of our business. Our business is serving God by serving one another. So what if instead of looking at our job as drudgery, we see it as part of our vocation in following Jesus? That would be keeping our eye on Jesus and not others. What if we spent the day not comparing ourselves to others, but doing all in our power to lift others up? That's keeping our eye on Jesus. And so may the peace of God, which surpasses our human understanding, Keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.